Hello, and welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. I'm Adam Husk, coming to you from Los Angeles, California. Thank you so much for listening. This is the second part of the special in-person, on-site conversation that I had in June of 2023, just a few weeks ago as I write this, with Mike Biltonen of Know Your Roots. Please check out part one for Mike's full bio and for a fantastic episode about holistic orchard culture within a biodynamic context. On this episode, we leave Mike's apostrophe orchard and enter the forest that surrounds it. We leave the realm of the known, the controlled, the cultivated, and enter the realm of questions, of curiosity, of the unexplored. The pace changes, the energy shifts, and the conversation evolves. I invite you to take this walk with us, but the suggestion I make is this. Don't enter the forest. Become it. The forest is the source of the orchard, the source of the vines and the vineyard. It is also our source. Our bodies and lives, our cultures, grow out of nature, out of the wild. When I speak of developing a more ecological wine culture, I'm essentially talking about ecomimicry, biomimicry, or just emulating the forest ecosystem more closely with our cultures. Along this walk, we discover amazing wild vines and talk of wine forests and vitiforestry. We speak of the need for further research into plant communication and energetics. We observe the values that the forest manifests in its multiple, diverse, and interconnected forms, and how these differ from and could be better incorporated into our production-oriented farming. We ask how to embrace beauty in our viticulture and pomiculture, along with ecological integration and economic viability. At a time when we now see the effect that the industrial food and beverage production system has, not just on what we eat and drink, but on the human psyche and on Gaia, Mike asks us to begin to consider the integration of secular and esoteric science. While he affirms the importance of data and statistics, he asks how we can marry those with our observations of nature that often give us better intuitive insights. Mike suggests that the more time we spend in nature, on our farms, in our vineyards and orchards, without the intentions of productivity and economic extraction, the better our observations become and the better our science becomes. I've recently started reading a book I'm already sure will be added to the reading list at organicwinepodcast.com. It's called The Biology of Wonder by Andreas Weber, or Weber. This bit from his introduction towards a poetic ecology seems to really fit this episode. Within nature, those values and meanings that life processes naturally produce manifest as living, vibrant forms that are therefore observable by the senses. In the bodies of other living beings, existential experiences such as fullness and fear, flourishing and hunger, death and birth, are not hidden but visible. They are manifest in their appearance. They are incarnate in the bodies of other organisms. Nature in this fashion exemplifies what we too are. It is the living medium of our emotions and our mental concepts. The power of the elements, the birth, growth, and vanishing of other beings, the alternation of light and dark that frames our own inner landscape, the inner and outer dimensions of nature, are one. But if the longing for nature is a necessary condition for our being, the vanishing of other creatures will have far-reaching consequences. It is possible that in the global environmental crisis, we are about to destroy something without which we are not able to exist. Can't wait to finish this book. (laughs) Also, Mike and I have done a fair bit of name-dropping in these two episodes, and I want to give shout-outs to some of the great New York producers who informed various ideas and observations and experiences mentioned here. 
Alfie and Deanna at Dear Native Grapes in the Catskills, Autumn and Ezra at Eve Cidery in Van Etten, Deva and Eric at Redbird Orchard Cider in Trumansburg, and Charlie and Josh of the brand spanking new Sylvan Farm in Hammondsport. Get to know these folks and their ciders and wines. There is a reason we mentioned them. And now, let's become the forest. Enjoy. So my question was, what was my question? <laughs> um, what do I look for in a piece of land, yeah. a plant, an orchard, or vineyard? Yeah. Um, well, somewhat fortuitously, I teach a class on this. Oh, fantastic. To help people who are looking. Is that on September 9th? That is on September I'm 9th, I'm going to try yes. to be here for that. Yes. Um, anyway, so... Um, you teach many classes, I should say, for the, for the record. Here. Yes, I do. And people can get them on knowyourroots.com? Knowyourroots.com with one R. Um, no, no, your roots. No, you roots. No, you yeah. roots. <laughs> Somebody else bought the other domain, Got so it. we kind of like, you know. Got but it. you'll know that you aren't at an orchard when you go, if you go to know your roots <laughs> with two R's. So. Got it. Um, yeah, so basically, you know, it's, you're looking for, I mean, it's like, it's like retail. It's like it's location, location, location. Now, sometimes yeah. people have to work with what they have to work with. And so you, you, know, you make the best of it. And like I did here even. I mean, this ground was not the best. I didn't have a full year to really work with it to prepare it for the, the trees. Um, but it had some, it had some uh, elevation to it. Okay. It had some slope. So there was good air drainage. Okay. Um, it was west facing, so it got good sunlight. Okay. Um, it was cleared, and you know, and it was an area that was known for fruit production. Right. Um, I mean, I know that there's people who are growing. They have apple orchards in the uh, uh, Catskills and other places that aren't traditional, uh, and grapes as well. Um, so it's not improbable that you can do that. Um, but there's a reason, like, the, there are three main regions for apple and grape production in New York State. And it's because the location is very conducive to being successful on a relatively uh, annual basis. What's the problem with the Catskills? Cold. Ah, okay. Yeah, I mean, now, if you... Right. Because you don't get the lake effect, you mean, or you don't have the lake effect. It can get really cold, um, you know. And I think if you know, even here in the Finger Lakes, the, a lot of the uh, grape producers here will get um, winter damage um, yeah. in the, you know. And so you have to be careful about that. But I think then, you know, if you're thinking about it differently, say like Alfie is, right, at Deer Native Grapes, where you're working with with different not just different varieties with different species that are more conducive to that climate yes then you're talking about or getting to that ecological adaptation um thing that we were talking about earlier so well yeah i mean right like we were we were over in the catskills two days ago and definitely saw wild grapes so i mean mm -hmm. you know they've figured out how to survive there and like that to your point yeah i think that's alfie's point as well which is like you know finding like they can do it. <laughs> like we just yeah. throw in the wrong ones if they're not doing it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you were trying, if you wanted to go say plant a vineyard and you were putting in Syrah and Chardonnay and right. Zinfandel, <laughs> it's just like, you know, here, why don't you just write me a check? I'll save you the hassle and you know, <laughs> yeah. type of thing. But yeah. you know, you work with, you know, the, the natives that he's working with and 
some of the hybrids that came out of Minnesota, then I really think that you have um, a good opportunity to make something like that work. Um, but you know, the other, I mean, the other part is like, I don't want it to be, you don't want to plant in a frost pocket either. Right. Um, right. so, you know, and sometimes you have to work with what you have to, but if you can avoid frost pockets, it's, it's, you're going to have a, a better chance of success year in and year out. Again, risk management. (laughs) You know, it's, it's a very dry way to look at it, but you have to think about these things because, you know, regardless of your ability to invest and manage that orchard, um, and your ability to lose or not lose a crop in a given year, you know, I think most people would prefer to be able to produce crops on a regular basis because that's what the economy of their business is, you know, based on. Um, Makes sense. Yeah. There's some wild vine. Yeah. Well. So anyway, so let me just. Yeah, please. So now we're entering the other part of the the property, which um, I almost find to be more intriguing than the orchard, but you can edit that part out. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think it's Um, important. I I know what you mean. Exactly. Where we're really starting to see what this part of the Finger Lakes is really about from a, you know, an ecosystem standpoint. I mean, we have, you know, there's hickories, there's honeysuckle, which is everywhere. There's spice bushes in here. Um, I still haven't found those mitakis yet, but that's, uh, <laughs> they're out there somewhere. But the one thing that I have found through here is like an amazing array of different types of wild grapes. Yeah. Um, that really is very exciting. And in, in, in large part, listening to many of the other um, people you've had on your podcast thought about now how, so how can I do something out here that will allow me to take advantage of that, um, intervene to grow those vines in a way that I can harvest something. Yeah. Um, because one of the areas that we're going to get to, the vines are 80 feet in the air, yeah. you know? Yeah. No, you're... You know, and you can't, I mean, you know, it, it's cool to look at, but I'm not harvesting any grapes from there. Yeah. So is there a way to kind of create sort of a natural trellis system in here to, you know, the, the what was it, the Vita forestry concept? Yeah. Um, or some of the stuff I think that I he- remember hearing Deidre talk about. Yeah. But just set it up so that it's, you know, you've got vines that are growing on a modified and sort of natural trellis out here in the woods and you harvest the grapes. Yeah. Yeah, it does seem like you'd have to bring the canopy open a bit, right? Um, and and then get get a create a forest edge within the forest sort of. Mhm. Yeah, exactly. I what I noticed with a, a couple of the vines that we were walking on our land down in Spencer and what I noticed, a really cool thing that I noticed was a lot of them started as spirals on the ground. Hmm. So the, okay. the vine literally came out and did a full circle, like a 360 degree circle before it started climbing up. And then of course, yeah, like you said, it was up to, in the canopy, so we couldn't even see the top of it. But I thought like multiple vines did that. It was very cool to see. And there, so these old, you know, the old thick barked vine had this beautiful spiral thing that before it started climbing like it was like they talk about bees that come out of the hive and they they circle a couple times to orient themselves before they go foraging so like they sort of gps themselves in relation to the hive right 
Well, you know, and that opens up a whole other rabbit hole about plant communication, which is like, right, totally has me entranced because, <laughs> I mean, we can talk scientifically about tropisms and that kind of stuff, but how does a plant really sense yeah. where to go? How does, how do the roots really sense where to go? Yeah. And there is some level, even though it's not the way we're conscious, um, you know, those, those mycorrhizal fungi or the plant roots or the plant itself or the vine that's 360 on the ground, it's doing something. Right. And this is where, you know, we need to really, I think, if we're going to be, if we're going to be successful at growing food in the next hundred years, we have to integrate these sciences, these sort of secular sciences and um, the spiritual sciences or the, just the esoteric science. Yeah. The power of observation, of really looking at what's going on yeah. with whatever's like right around us. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Um, but there's a there's an interesting researcher uh, who, she's Italian, but she's at the University of Australia, um, Monica uh, Gagliano, who is, she has like a whole research lab set up around plant communication. And yeah. there's another guy in Florence, Italy. Stefano Mancuso, yes. who's yeah, doing like she wrote a book. She's, she's fighting for the uh, the rights of plants, right? Like she's trying to yes, that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just saw that. I think she did a panel at Raw. Like Isabel did, had her do a, a a whole talk at one of the Raws. I think in Europe, mm -hmm. uh, which is online, which blew my mind in a in a good way. You know, I mean, it wasn't like new to me, but it was sort of like took it to the next level. And right. I was like, oh yeah, this is like. This is a whole other can of worms to, t to think about. Yeah. Well, again, it's, it's, a, it's that sort of expansive thinking of, um, you know, bringing, bring, bring us as individuals into a different realm of yeah. thinking about what agriculture is really about. Right. You know, and I mean, we could... And we how could, important we are. And how important we are, yeah. 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 You know, because I think the, 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 the coalescence of all knowledge, our knowledge plant knowledge, mycorrhizal knowledge, etc., is it, it, it just, it's the sum is greater than the individual parts yeah. and it helps us, uh, I think, address some issues that are, you know, not really being addressed the way that they should be. No. I mean, if we're still talking about just like the value of compost and plant teas and, you know, yeah. how dangerous synthetic, I mean, we're not even talking about how dangerous synthetic pesticides are. I mean, we are, <laughs> right, right. but you know, out in the world, I mean, Roundup's still the number one sprayed herbicide used pesticide on the planet yeah you know the u.s epa couldn't get their head out of their ass to well in large part it was because of trump but um to ban lor's ban or chlorpyrifos until just a couple of years ago yeah. and it's like such a, a widely known neurotoxin right um you know and there's like numerous examples after that but yeah. it's just like you know we can't get out of our own way sometime and yeah. think differently and yeah. a lot of it i think is fear-based so i talked about risk management yeah i think you know overcoming our fears of thinking differently and doing different things um, is another tool that we need to be able to do we need to we need to come out of we need to break out of our comfort zone yeah i think i want to make a correction to what i said i said we i, I sort of alluded to we overemphasize our importance and I don't think that's it I think we are important we're just not special <laughs> like everything is important right we shouldn't think of ourselves as especially more important than anything else right yeah equally important and with a lot of power <laughs> uh, because of our brains yeah well and we and we have I mean we have you know historically over the last how many ever thousands of years 
placed the human species on a pedestal that it doesn't yeah. belong on. Yeah. You know, and and this is where, you know, I think, you know, there there's an old uh, Earth First saying, "Nature bats last." You <laughs> yeah. know, it's like yeah. you know, we're not going to be able to outrun nature. You know, matter yeah. no matter what we do to the environment, nature's going to bat last. Yeah. You know, and it's going to it's going to have that bottom of the ninth you know single that drives in the winning run <laughs> for itself if nothing else now um i am looking for oh, i was gonna ask where are we yeah well we're in the middle of the woods if you hadn't figured that out <laughs> um so the edge of the property comes right up to this ravine over here this gorge and that is a gorge for sure wow Yes, watch your watch your step. Um, wow. But there, I'm still I'm still learning where everything is, and I don't have my internal GPS totally dialed in. Well, I'm also but, making you talk while you walk and think about other things other than pay attention necessarily. Yeah, and that's so. But sprinkled throughout here, there's a lot of wild grapes, and... I see, across the way there, a big gnarly thing. That's where I'm headed, yeah. I'm so glad we're doing this. This is what I did all day yesterday. Hey, here's something. Little, little something. Oh, yeah. That just popped up. Yeah, I was going to say that earlier, I noticed the woods seemed to be pretty, it was a pretty dry spring, so there's not a lot of mushroom activity that I've seen, even with this new rain that came. Yeah, not not recently, unfortunately. Um, yeah, I mean, we're, we're starting to get more rain, so I, that's, I'm, I'm heading out to check on things a bit more frequently than I did when we were in the middle of the drought in May. Yeah. Um, well, and I'll go back to what you said about uh, you're almost more excited about this part of the, of the property than the orchard. And uh, I mean, so much of what I want to do with vines and trees is to recreate this in a in an ecosystem that is obviously much more human in scale, so that we can harvest it. Um, but that essentially tries to replicate this feeling that you get of being within a a different realm. Instead of, you know, I think like vineyards feel like rows of fences that exclude you, really, mm -hmm. and aren't interactive and are, you know, the intention behind them is efficiency, productivity, you know, those are the main things, you know, right. they, like commercial extraction for the most part rather than things like the sense that you get when you're in a forest which is the sense of wonder the sense of i don't know peace a sense of like interactive of being you know sort of i don't know within a system rather than on top of it or excluded from a system or you know the system existing for your as this separate thing from you intended for financial gain this is like a you know this has a whole different intention behind it and mm -hmm. replicating that with a vineyard and orchard um 
is kind of my goal to do like a wine forest, you know, right? Rather than a vineyard. And and the thing that I was saying, where you you had planted those uh, the wildflowers, the perennial wildflowers. The question I have for you is like, how how hard would it be, or from your experience, to maintain the commercial or like with what sort I'm looking for um, profitability while implementing beauty into a system? Like, do you have you considered that, or what are your thoughts? Well, on I've that? considered that probably longer than I've considered most of the things we've been talking about. <laughs> awesome, um, awesome. You know, and it really comes down to you know triple bottom line accounting is that we don't take things like aesthetics and clean water and clean air and healthy soil, um, healthy food into account of the economics. Yeah, organic food's more expensive than conventional. Yada yada yada. But we really don't have that third line of, of quote unquote revenue of benefit or value added or you know whatever you want to call it um that that where we can take those things into account and for me it's i mean i guess to a large degree it's a seventh generation approach it's like i want to leave the land better than when i found it for the next seven generations and um and yeah i do want it to be economically um beneficial um and i've you know as i said i'm, I'm looking to try and use all of this the orchard you know, the nut orchard that I have over there that's just getting started, you know, for research and education to people, to help people better understand how they can do the same thing, um, you know, from an aesthetic standpoint, from an ecological standpoint, from an economic standpoint. Um, so, you know, but, the, and there are people who have attempted to put values on those kinds of things. Um, I did a research, I was part of a research paper when I was at Cornell in the early 90s with a iconic um, ecological uh, professor, Dave, Dave Pimentel. And it was basically trying to, in a very robust way, understand the economic impacts of pesticide use globally, taking into account all these things that we don't take into account. Now, this was less about bringing aesthetics into it, but it was like all the, all the, the expenses that come along with pesticide use to human health or soil degradation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Water. And it was it was still Air. an amazing yeah amazing piece of work, um, even though it was you were accumulating a lot of literature um, from around the world. Yeah. Uh, but it was I mean it was published in several books and chapters and as a paper by itself, etc. But what it really told me is like we're not looking at this thing and in any other way except for in a very extractive way of like how can I make the most money from growing these grapes and turning them into wine. Yeah. And, and getting people to buy it. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, speaking of, <laughs> this, how old is this part of the forest, do you think? Like, when was it last logged, do you think? Well, it's hard to say. Um, it was obviously logged at some point, but yeah. it's probably been 100 years, I would I, guess. I was going to say, I wouldn't be yeah. surprised if this vine is 100 years old. This well, is, that's, that was my guess, yeah. Wow, that's a, incredible. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when I came upon it, I was just like, holy crap. Yeah, most of the vines that I was looking at yesterday were a single, a single uh, trunk structure spiraling around up into the trees where mm -hmm. it finally branched. This is like monstrous jungle gym of <laughs> spiraling trunks. Yeah, uh, straight from the ground. The one is holy crap. I mean, at least six inches in diameter. Uh, in some parts, bigger than that for sure. At the base, it's probably a foot or yeah, more. Yeah, at least a foot. Yeah. You know, then we, it's sending off new shoots, and you could use it to train up its own. The vines yeah. already going to the top, and 
yeah, I'm not going to climb 40 feet into the air, but I'll, I'll go 15 feet to harvest any grapes that might come off of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I think the, one of the big things, which kind of brings us back more to the secular science, is like, is it going to get enough sunlight right. to actually survive? And that's why these vines have gone all the way to the top, because yeah, they're, they're harvesting sunlight. Yeah, um, and, and I've said this before, I mean, not to you, but, you know, I, I, one of the magical things to me about vines is their ability to sort of survive at any level in the canopy. They can crawl along the ground. They can, they can be on a little shrub or an apple, you know, like pond side. Or they can climb all the way to the top of a hundred foot canopy and be up, you know, and, and get what they need to survive even yeah. within like a, a full mature forest. So there's that so. one that's just, it looks like oh, a Tarzan vine, up. you know? Wow. And, I mean, don't ask me how it got there. It was probably right. on that, probably <laughs> right. on that tree that fell eventually, oh, but, yeah, you're right. um, but you know, there's one tree and I will be hard pressed to absolutely find but you you can look around i mean there's just like there's that yeah, i mean that's are. an impressive vine i think that one comes from this one <laughs> like, well i'm sure i think they probably all do and that's yeah. and that's where i started thinking the layering okay, and the layering of it um but looking on the ground for where you know some of those suckers are coming up and being able to use it and maybe taking snags like this and putting them at an angle and then allowing that vine to grow up it, yeah. you know, in its own way, at its own pace, yeah. but giving it a little more utility to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. And you can see over here where there's, uh, it looks like the little sun is coming through. There might be a little, a new shoot coming up right yeah. there. From one of the old, and I mean, I love the idea of like, especially if you have a hundred year old vine like that, if you could, if it had a hundred years to just like, try to figure out an entire acre of land and then you have the super organism like it's sending up shoots from you know everywhere you know where it's putting down roots and mm -hmm. sending up shoots and putting down roots and sending up shoots and then this ecosystem grows in and you have what looks like a, a whole vineyard orchard or vineyard forest but it's one vine it's one ecosystem you know, it's one yeah, yeah one an organism yeah. <laughs> and all connected as and you then you through. know and then how is you know how are the hemlocks and the oaks and the maples and the other trees, you know, how are they changing, you know, from an epigenetic standpoint, mm -hmm. the character of that grape? I mean, we, right. we don't know what variety that is. I mean, right. if it's a hundred years old, it could be nothing or it could be something that's, yeah. in, um, but you know, cause hemlocks and maples and oaks are not normal parts of a, a normal vineyard setup. Right. You know, what we consider normal now what we consider to be normal. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, just, bringing it into a different ecosystem, different plant associations. Yeah. Now, this is the other idea I have is like every row in my wine forest will be a different species of tree mm -hmm. and see, you know, yeah. You know, I mean, you could plant all the same grape and just see if each row tastes different kind of thing, right. you know, like, um, I don't know, but I just, you know, I, I, I've heard that they do well with certain species like maple and, uh, What's the other one? The, uh, I mean, maple's been really traditional, um, but then the berries, the mulberries, are mm -hmm. apparently really, really they really grow crazy with mulberries for some reason. Um, but yeah, it's the, those. These are the questions I'm asking too. Like, what, what's it like? It's such a fun, unexplored thing in modern times. I'm sure you know the ancients had answers to some of these questions because they were. This is the environment that they found the grapes in and worked with them. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like, you know, and I haven't been there. This is, so this is Anna. I've heard this from other people, but 
Um, well, we know that it's in, in Spain, the cider industry is such that each village had apple trees that it would harvest from, and each village had kind of their own terroir, their mm. own cider they produced. And when yeah. you went from town to town to town, there may be a similar style in terms of how they made it in that very sort of Spanish way. But, um, you know, each cider was different too because right. the trees that they nurtured over the years and the climate and the people who were making it were, were different than the next town over. Right. Um, you yeah. know, and... Uh, I dig that. So... That is a gorgeous vine. Thanks for showing me. Yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> amazing. So how you have a crew of people it sounds like, is that right? Um I have I have two employees that work with me, yeah. Oh, okay. And how much like how how many acres do you consult on and manage? Well, um Oh, and this is a whole bed of sassafras. So, oh, wow. So if you want to... <laughs> make some root beer? Make some root beer. Here <laughs> it is. So this is another, like, really interesting find. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, I... Well, I've, I've got a dozen... Approximately a dozen growers that I work with very hands-on. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, you don't have to give specific anything. Um, and I'm just, well, I mean, all told it probably is, you know, like five or 600 acres. Yeah. You know, none of the orchards are like incredibly large, but you know, the, there's, there's two, two that are, you know, a hundred acres plus, um, a few that are kind of in the 50 range and then some that are smaller than that. Um, and then I do some remote consulting as well. Uh -huh. So I have clients where we'll meet or call on a weekly basis and kind of talk about what they're seeing and discuss what they need to do. Have you... have you had any experiences with clients where you've brought them further down the path than they thought they would ever go in in terms of the kind of farming that you do and recommend I think so um, I do you know I do work with some growers that still spray conventionally uh -huh. um, but the idea is to transition them and this is like one of the other like realistic things is you can't particularly for an orchard or farm that's been managed conventionally for years yeah. you can't just walk in and like flip the switch right and I've kind of placed a time frame of four to seven years of transitional time before you can like be really in that organic biodynamic holistic realm yeah. um, and so I work with everybody to lighten the load on their spray programs um, to work with as many biological and holistic products as they can to think nutritionally beyond your typical NP and K additions to work with compost and wood chips and biological sprays. So, um, and we're still kind of, you know, we're, we're still in that time frame with a few of them. Right. Um, there's also other, you know, logistical issues that are involved, but, um, but, and then there's some others that we're, we're already into, in it, you know, in, to, in it to win it. Yeah. And those are the ones that either had been managed biodynamically for a while or organically 
or new orchards which were just recently established or some growers that just had like a hardcore we're just doing it yeah. and we're going to see what happens have any of the conventional ones have they started to see a difference or or as you've worked with them have they i don't know i'm just curious if you had any stories about them you know tentatively trying something and then being surprised or or anything like that oh yeah yeah that and that's part of the reason that we really kind of had to hit the reset button is like there were there were a couple growers i worked with where we um, we leapt right into it with an organic program and by mid-july everything looked gorgeous yeah. And I thought, man, we are geniuses here. <laughs> and then by the end of July, beginning of August, the wheels came off the train and it was, we really had to, just to salvage the, whatever crop there was in the trees, we had to hit the reset button and, and just go back to doing what we had to do. I, I mean, something, yeah. yeah. Um, and it was sad to have to do that, but it taught me a lot about how we have, patience is like a big part of that transition, transitional thing that no matter how hard you want to do it, um, you have to be realistic with what the hurdles are going to be. Um, and you have to look at the history of the farm, how it was managed, how it is being managed. Yeah. Um, the varieties are there because there's some varieties which are just, they don't belong in an organic setting unless it's in California or Washington or wherever. Yeah. Um, it's just, we just have too much disease pressure on the East coast. Yeah. Um, and then there's others which are like, man, if I could plant a hundred acres of this and I could do nothing yeah. and I, <laughs> Right. look like a genius um, <laughs> and that's what's so exciting about what I have going on here is like you know this is what I want people to see that right. you know incorporating these plant teas and taking a very bio approach and working with the plant biodiversity um, working with the soil health in a very coherent way I mean the trees look great yeah. you know and the only reason we don't have a crop this year it's not because the right. trees don't look good it's because of the stupid freeze right um, and I, that's what I'd like to do is to get more growers to be able to implement some of that stuff, either in some trial blocks or on an orchard wide setting, um, you know, because there are biological realities and we it just it is what it is. Yeah. And this is, again, genetics comes in important. I think things like Gala and Fuji and Honeycrisp are kind of ridiculous to try and grow in organic settings. Um, but there in are my backyard. They seem to do fine. Well, yeah, but <laughs> I'm not even spraying them with anything. Yeah, so they're thriving. Yeah, well, <laughs> Fuji anyway. Yeah, your backyard in, in Los Angeles. Right. Yeah. I was going to say, yeah, yeah. A slightly different climate. Yes, there. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, um, you know, and I think that you have to realize geographically what works well. And this goes back to another part of looking at some of these, you know, locally or regionally adapted wild or feral varieties and seeing how we can bring them into, you know, production. Yeah. Um, but I do know that some people who've done that is like, once you take that tree, cuttings from that mother tree, graft it, grow another tree and plant it in a different location, it acts differently. Mm. And that goes to this whole, okay, so what is this environment doing with that hundred year old grapevine mm -hmm. that probably wouldn't happen if we were to root that graft or root that vine and, and plant it in a more traditional, yeah. you know, vineyard setting. Wow. Yeah. But it's a pretty pretty peaceful place back here. That's lovely down there. Yeah, this this keeps running. Is that all on the property? Yeah. It, it goes over to the other side? Um, the property line is actually the middle of the, the creek. Oh, okay, got it. So it probably goes another 100 yards up that way. Got it, okay. Um, lovely. There's a nice little deer trail. Yeah. And that's what we use too. So yeah. we'll think that's deer good for something, right? <laughs> um, 
Yeah, well, but yeah. Can so. you envision? I had this conversation with Autumn last night. A, a system that didn't use deer fences. Like, is there a way to let? I mean, for her, it's a matter of convenience because you could let them graze it up to five feet, but then all of your apples is like above that, and it's right. harder and harder to harvest. Is that the main concern? That's the main consideration. Well, I mean, they can depending on where you're at and the the pressure. I mean, deer can not just chew up to five feet; they can devastate a new orchard. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, they can devastate a new vineyard, right? Uh, for that matter. So, I think there is, um, if you're willing to accept the fact that you know the apples will be, you know, yeah. over your head by the time the time it's mature. Yeah. It's not one of those situations that i'm willing to put into play i yeah. mean it's just like i anybody i work with who's planning a new orchard that doesn't have it you know we're going to get a deer fence or some sort of deer exclude exclusion device yeah. um otherwise we're i'm not going to be a part of it because they'll just devastate the right yeah the yeah. trees <laughs> again risk management yeah yeah, yeah. No, i get it um but you know to that you know on the deer fence that's around the orchard we one thing we found in the first couple of years is that the vole population was really high, ah, okay. and what we didn't realize is that the wildlife fencing, as much as it kept deer out, also kept foxes and coyotes and you know other critters out. Right. And so um, because it, you know as the squares get smaller as you go down the fence. Ah, okay. And so and it also it keeps groundhogs out, which is great, and rabbits to some degree, right. but it kept out those predators. Right. And so we cut some. Uh, little squares out or you know whatever you want to call them cat doors oh yeah um in the fence to allow something small enough to get in and out uh. and then we coaxed it in with cat food just uh. to kind of get them entrained to coming in and now they know how to get in and out and nice. it, i really feel like the vole population has dropped quite a bit oh fantastic yeah wow, that's great so. yeah i was going to ask about that too yeah because yeah yeah for that exact reason. That's yeah. great. I mean, we use tree guards around each of the trees. Right. Yeah, you know, for vole that. protection. Um, but, you know, outside of that, there's no really effective vole control um, except for, um, you know, poisoning them. Right. And right. I mean, we're just not going to go down that alley. Yeah. Even, even people who use high doses, there's a vitamin D product that's out there, which is lethal to animals if they eat enough of it. I'm just okay. like, uh, you know, right. it's not, it's not a, a direction I want to go. Right. So I'd rather try and exclude them as opposed to, and let other critters yeah. eat them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. Great. Yeah. But Should we head this way? Or um, which way are we Back towards the road maybe? We, yeah, well, let's go down this way because we can get a little bit closer and. Oh, yeah. Immersive was the word I was looking for, for the experience of being here. Ah. And it's immersive to your to all parts of you, where I think uh, vineyards and orchards feel segmented, and you know there's I don't know you know it's it's a different it's not immersive unless you have an old orchard. That's where I think you finally get to that where you have the big trees and you have like an understory and you can kind of walk under branches and things like that. Right. This is beautiful. Look at that little tumble. Yeah. Well, after we get our six tenths of an inch of rain at four o'clock, this will be <laughs> right. roaring. It feels pretty quick, right? That's like. It doesn't take very long. Yeah. You know, and especially now that there's a little bit of moisture in the soil. So, are you 
making cider commercially or just uh, on the side? This is your your a farmer is your main job, right? Farming and consulting. Yep. Yeah, farming and consulting. Yeah. Um, well, the answer is that no, I'm not making it commercially. I've thought about it. Um, part of me at this point in my life has to consider whether I want the hassle of having a license and record keeping and reporting and yeah. taxes and all that kind of stuff. But the other part is like, I mean, as you well know, we live in an area where there are some tremendous cider producers who've been doing it far longer than I have. Yeah. And I, I would have to, I would have to feel like I'm doing something really special that complements what's going on in, in the area. Right. Um, and isn't just like another cider that somebody's making because it's like a hot new thing. Right. Um, you know, and in that way I can do what I want, when I want, but. So what are some, just to get you talking, what are some unusual things that you've learned in the years, the 40 years that you've been farming? Like I just, I just found something out from uh, goat farmers who've been farming for 40 years. That if you have unfixed cats in a goat barn, pregnant goats will abort. Um, huh. And, and the other person I told this to surmised because it was like the pheromone is a predator pheromone and it might trigger like this evolved response to like abort your child if there are too many predators in the area kind of right. thing. Right. Um, and so now this, this goat farmer where we were only allows fixed cats <laughs> for their barn cats. Um, but that's a, I don't know, I just thought there was like such a fun, interesting thing that like if you don't talk to somebody who's been at it for a while you would never know, but it's vitally important because it's a stupid mistake if you never heard that before. Right, know? right. What about what about that with apples? That's a good question, and I think that you know it's for all the progress, air quotes again, that we've made in the last hundred years of you know tree fruit technology that all the those changes have not always been for the good um, you know and there's yeah I, I I think that well I think what I've really found is that you know by and large and again your listeners and the people that we've been talking about are not in this but that we're we're rather close-minded when it comes to farming and agriculture growing fruit um, and it goes in part to this triple bottom line concept of how do we bring these other elements, aesthetics, clean air, clean water into the conversation, if not to the financial bottom line. Um, you know, we, I think we, we sometimes dismiss new ideas and new concepts simply because they just don't seem reasonable because we've let them go. But, um, John Kemp with AEA, mm -hmm. um, Michael Phillips, a bunch of people who are associated with Acres USA, many of the authors there, uh, Mike, Michael Phillips as well, as if I didn't just say his name. Um, but <laughs> yeah. um, that there was a lot of research in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, and we knew a lot of the damage that we were doing agriculturally back then. That was the whole reason Rudolf Steiner gave the biodynamic lecture. Mm. And we gave that up when, at the end of World War II, we had these powerful tools that would kill anything mm. the green revolution happened and all that kind of stuff and i think that that it entrained us and kind of lured us into this false sense of um 
of of optimism that you know we as a species are going to be able to uh, you know work our way out of any situation if we just you know come up with a different technology a different tool or whatever instead of thinking about it from a more nature-based standpoint um, and looking at it the way that the farmers did 100 150 200 years ago and obviously long before that when they didn't have those tools um, that's not to say that there aren't a lot of good things that have happened in the last hundred years. I think that technology has helped us to better understand some of the biological realities with like uh, disease life cycles, insect life cycles, that kind of stuff. Um, I mean, Elaine Ingham couldn't do the work that she did. Michael Phillips couldn't have written the books that he did. You know, John Kemp couldn't be doing the work that he's doing um, without a lot of that progress. But where they differ from, I think, a lot is that they're, they're allowing themselves to be more expansive in their thought process and looking back in time at some of the seminal research that was just put in a box on a shelf because, well, now we had DDT, mm -hmm. um, that kind of stuff. And, it, you know, that's not, there's not like a specific thing like, you know, barn cats and, and goat barns. <laughs> right, right. Um, but that I think if we, you know, again, if we allow ourselves to kind of come back to a more nature-based approach to be more one, be, in, in what we're working with and around us and the people we're working with, the intentionality of what we're doing, that a lot of the so-called problems that we have, um, answers will be, be revealed, mm. um, you know, either with plant teas or compost. It doesn't mean there's just sort of magically the poof on the landscape or whatever. But, um, but I think if we try new things and be more expansive in our research, I mean, I can't remember which, which of your guests it was that every farmer should be doing research on their farm. You know, that's something very simple that's not being done. Mm. You know, most farmers don't do research on their farms. They're de they've been dependent on Cornell and Penn State and Michigan mm. State and UC Davis to do a lot of that. Um, that's changing because those land-grant university programs are, the nature of those programs is changing. Um, but if you're like, you know, in a mindset like we are, um, we're going to be the ones that have to do that research because nobody else is. Mm -hmm. um, and whether it's on a very local, regional type of, you know, um, level um, or something broader um, is kind of irrelevant. But we, you know, and we can do that through research network collaboratives. Um, I'm also, so Michael, Michael Phillips, um, in addition to all his books and the work that he did, had uh, started this holistic orchard network, which began actually over 30 years ago with the Berkshire Roundtable. It was a meeting up in the Berkshires where holistic growers would get together and kind of muse on all these different concepts. Um, and then he, in the 2000s, he started the Holistic Orchard Network, which was an online forum to people for people to ask questions, engage in conversation. Well, when Michael passed, you know, there was nobody right in line to sort of pick up that work and run with it. And so myself and another guy in Vermont, Todd Parlow, um, at the, uh, with the graciousness of Nancy, Michael's wife, and his, uh, his daughter, Grace, um, basically gifted us the Holistic Orchard Network to, you know, to carry it on, you know, in a very general way for the Holistic Orchard Network regionally, nationally, internationally, we have some international people on there. Um, but also um, to carry on Michael's legacy because there is a treasure trove of information in there that if people spend any modicum of time on there, you're going to find stuff, questions asked, answers being given, um, 
you know, uh, resources that you're not going to find anywhere. It's mm. just, and so Todd and I have taken this and he's working on the website part of it. I'm, I'm working more on the admin side of all of this. But where I was going with that is that this is still very much an active thing that's going on, the Holistic Orchard Network. And we've toyed around for years with developing at least a small group of growers that are willing to work collaboratively on similar um, research projects. Could be fire blight, could be codling moth control, could be nutrition, um, could be sap analysis. And, uh, and we're, we're going to continue to do that kind of work. So that, that, that impetus um, or the potential is there. It's just that, you know, the individual growers need to have the in impetus and intentionality to want to participate and follow through on that. And some will, and some don't have the time. And that, that's fine, because we all need to learn from each other. Um, anyway, I, I think I feel like I got sidetracked a little bit. But, you know, what I've <laughs> no, learned... I was going to ask you about that anyway, so yeah. I'm glad you... I mean, we're, not, we're not doing enough of that kind of stuff, and we can't depend on the land-grant universities to to do the kind of research around the questions that we that we really desperately need to have asked. Mm -hmm. Yeah. or answered yeah yeah um do you want to walk sure you walk up we'll just go back up the hill here so while we're walking if you have the breath <laughs> yeah i'd love to get your thoughts about pears um and are there any differences in working with pears i mean i'm sure that, you know the, the approach is the same but in terms of anything that you've noticed both in, you know, in terms of growing, what they like, uh, or anything else. Yeah, well, um, sure. Um, pears have, they have different pest complex, uh -huh. um, both disease and insect. Actually, let's walk back over this way. Um, they grow differently and they bear differently. Uh-huh. I think the one strong similarity they have to apples is that they are susceptible to fire blight. Ah. Um, in fact, that's what wiped out the pear industry in the Hudson Valley oh, wow. back in the late 60s. Sounds, um, like, sounds like we need some good pear breeding. Is there any, are there any varieties of any palm fruit that are fire blight resistant? Oh, sure. Okay. Yeah, there's that's quite possible. a... Yeah. Yeah, and um, <clears throat> in Canada at the Ontario Research Station, they have developed at the Harrow at the Harrow Research Station on the Ontario Peninsula. They have um, developed a number of varieties that are fire blight resistant, and the same thing down at uh, the USDA. ARS station in Carneysville, West Virginia, they came up with like P Potomac and Shenandoah. Um, oh, nice. Okay. So, so yeah, they, there are fire blight resistant and they're actually good pear varieties. Um, I think everybody wants to plant these peri pear varieties, which are like magnets for a fire blight gotcha. and I don't know if you've talked to Autumn about it but you know uh, she's like are you sure you want to do pears <laughs> it's like oh I'll listen yeah uh, yeah no just... I mean seckles seckles are while they're not a peri pear seem to be because the skin to flesh ratio is different have a higher tannic content than larger say like Bartlett's or Bosques um, and so a lot of people will use those to make peris out of um, but I think the exciting thing again is going back to what people are finding in nature right yeah and there's one grove of 
pear trees, which I'm still not sure whether it's a planted pear orchard or a feral or wild one that sprung yeah. up for some reason yeah. um, in the Catskills, which is quite impressive. Oh. Um, so there are some wild pear varieties out there. Or I should say trees that are out there. Yeah, yeah. They're not named varieties. Um, well, I just, we just encountered uh, a pear... Uh, what, do you, what, what was the word you just used? A little um, grove mm -hmm. that apparently was all a single tree. Like it was a, what do they call it? A root suckering mm -hmm. variety. Yep. Um, and we tasted the cider made from it. It was amazing. And it was like... I don't know, like I love the idea again of a, a whole grove being a single organism and then it made some really delicious uh, Perry <laughs> so and yeah, really I, so I was excited by that I don't know, you know how how it does otherwise, but it's feral It's been around for a while in a in a place where it hasn't been sprayed at all, you know, just a wild Grove so that was kind of exciting And I just recently learned about, so I, I knew with pears, you have sorbitol. Right. The unfermentable sugar, which, you know, adds like this perception of sweetness or a sweetness to the cider, even when it's fully dry. Um, and then there are uh, apples like that as well. Do you, uh, so I just found out about the sorbitol apples, which was kind of interesting as well. Well, I have to say, I, I don't, I didn't, I don't know about that. Oh, okay. They might be more cider. They could be, yeah. Cider varieties. Um, yeah, I mean, as much as they make cider, I am certainly not right, the right. <laughs> fermentation <laughs> got it, got it. expert. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Kind of off topic, but um, on the drive over here, we were, I was talking about silvopasture you know, agroforestry mm -hmm. and with animals and no sooner had I talked about like, like these, uh, we were just talking about like, you know, maybe you don't need a big barn, even in this environment, if you have like a grove of trees that animals can shelter in, especially, you know, certain breeds are really hardy, even in the cold winters here. And no sooner had we said that than we passed a field where there's one tree and every town the field is under the tree. <laughs> It's like, why don't farmers see that and take note and say, like, oh, maybe we should add a few more trees in here. They seem to like them. That's because if they, if they left trees in there, that's one less cow they can put out there, you know? <laughs> right, right. We'll head over this way. I mean, it reminds me of a lot of stuff in, you know, just observational farming like that you were talking about. actually paying attention to what's already really obvious well I mean that goes you know it goes back kind of to a Fukuoka you know thing of where if you um, if you've read one straw revolution he talks about finding these huts on the hills when he after he went back to the family farm where the farmers would go and they would rest or have lunch he found haiku was written on the walls and stuff but it was like, we don't, I mean, and it's speaking very generally again, we don't take time out of the active part of farming mm. to engage in what's going on around us. Mm. And whether we keep notes or write haiku or whatever is, you know, yeah. that's up to the individual. 
but you know we should just there should be like a little meditation spot in every orchard where you just sit and you're one with what's going on yeah and and you'll yeah. see some of that stuff and sometimes you don't even have to meditate i mean it's like why, driving past the field with the cows under the tree it's just like duh right you know they need <laughs> right. they, they they need shelter yeah, this massive field of grass, and uh, you know, it was like probably a 10, 15, 20 acre field of grass and one tree. Yeah. Yeah, and what, I, what you're talking about, uh, I don't know if you listened to the episode with Virginia Samsel, but she, she calls that non transactional time with your plants. Right. You know, spend, spend non transactional time on your farm, essentially. She's like, have it, take a nap. <laughs> yeah, I did listen to that one. Yeah. Um, it was very fascinating because that's exactly what we need to be doing. Yeah. Everything's grown up. I have to, I don't, right. <laughs> right. I mean, I know where I'm going, but it's just wandering a little bit more than I might normally. Oh, here comes some rain. You, you... I don't know. Anything else that you're thinking about that might be out there? Might just be a question for you right now. Might not be. Like, what are the questions you'd, you'd like to see asked that aren't being asked? Um, I mean, I guess I'd like, and this goes again to this integration of esoteric and secular science. I'd like to see some real research done on plant communication and energetics yeah. beyond a handful of researchers uh, like Monica and Stefano. Um, yeah. You know, this whole, there's this whole concept, you know, of quorum sensing and yeah. down in the root and, you know, cause I think those, those are going to lead us in a direction that we desperately need to go in. And I think it will expand our, capabilities as stewards to nurture the plants in the land in a way that brings us to that Fukuoka level of you know don't just don't do nothing but do as little as possible and write haiku you know yeah. um, you know and I mean some of that is you know it's not it has to be it's not I'm not saying it needs to be data driven but I think it needs to go beyond just kind of plain rhetoric. Yeah. Um, and, to, and to some degree, that's what we've got. And, you know, but I think there's, you know, Goethe, you know, was very much in sort of an ob observational state of mind. Too bad the plastic's not up on the greenhouse. <laughs> um, this is like the perfect level of rain, actually. Yeah. Refreshing, but not drenching. Well, at four, it's supposed to come down in buckets, so. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so, well, all right, so this whole area is going to become a, kind of a work zone. Okay. We're, we're going to dump wood chips here. Compost is going to be moved over here. All of this brush, we're going to do a biochar pit, and we're okay. going to make biochar. So I think there's also needs to be more research into, there's already enough research into why biochar is important or how yeah. it can be important to agriculture. So I don't even know that that's a question. It's like, how do we get it into the hands of people and using it on a larger scale to the point where it's, it's not just something that, you know, 
people talk about yeah. um, in the regenerative ag circles. Right, right. Um, I still think there's a lot to be done with making good compost. Yeah. You know, so, you know, apart from the other stuff I was just talking about, you know, yeah. it's like, I think there's, we still have some real practical questions that need to be answered around just some basic stuff that we're doing. Soil management, <clears throat> you know, plant teas. <laughs> compost making, biochar. Yeah. You know, gene priming is a big one in plants. You know, where they have those genes in the plants to be, to do certain things, whether it's drought resistance or whatever, we need to figure out how to activate them. There's a paper that came out that talked about how cytokinins um, and even silica, so two separate things, but they both have to do with helping to reduce abiotic stress in plants. Okay. So cytokinins can help with drought resistance. Okay. Many different types of mycorrhizal fungi can help with drought resistance as well as well-known things such as nutrient mobility, etc. Um, but silica also can help with drought resistance and drought tolerance. Interesting. And yet silica, even though whatever it is, 75% of the Earth's crust is made up of silica, is considered to be a non-essential nutrient. And it's because 75% <laughs> of the Earth's crust. Uh. So how do we, how do we, in a, in a way that it's more than just throwing more silica into the system. How do we get silica in there in a meaningful way that allows for these changes to be made, you know, within the plant in terms of abiotic stresses? You know, and for me, we use, we're using horsetail tea with every single spray that we put on. Yeah. And horsetail is about 40% silica. Oh, okay. Um, and it works with cell structure, um, tissue integrity. It has disease resistance capabilities, um, and uh, also helps you know reduce these abiotic stresses. Could you use diatomaceous earth as a silica source? Sure, like you could stir a little bit of that into a prep. You could. Okay. Yeah. Um, you would probably want to break it down to smaller particles if you wanted to spray it. Right. Um, and that's the nice thing about the horsetail is we're actually making a, an extractive tea okay. with it and then being able to spray it out. Okay. Um, but the other thing I found out, and I didn't realize it, is that bamboo, and in fact all very erect grasses, are the only reason that they're that erect is because of silica. Oh. And so putting, you know, um, you know, cutting down the grass and using it as a mulch around the trees allows the silica to get into the soil. Uh, Not that the earth needs more of it, but right. hopefully it's a bioactive. Right. You know, bioavailable. Yeah. Version. Bioavailable version. Right. That's great. You made me think of something when you were talking about goats. I forget what you said right before that. But um, this has been lovely. Yeah. <laughs> if I remember, I'll say something, but I can't remember now. Yeah. But this has been lovely. Look at this. It's rain. We're going to have a rainbow here at the end of this walk, I think. I think so. Got sun and rain and. A nice little rain, yeah. Yeah. 
Well, we certainly could use more of it. We haven't had enough, and I think I'm hoping, you know, yeah, just keeps on coming. Kind of had a spring from hell in a way, right? Like sort of and droughty and freezy, and it was, it was very hot in April, and then it cooled off and was rainy in May until it got hot and dry, and then we had the freeze, and then it cooled off a little bit more, and now we're just we're kind of settling into what it should have been all along. Right. So. Yeah, Thanks thank you. This is lovely. I hope. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. And if you would like to support this podcast and the kind of out of the box thinking about how to build a different agriculture, wine culture around ecological principles, please consider supporting by subscribing to our Patreon at the link will be in the show notes and on organicwinepodcast.com. Also, reviews are greatly appreciated, especially positive ones with five stars and a nice word. And just spread the word and help let others find out about this podcast. Thank you so much for your support.